0: For the last three months, we've been in a series that started with a definition of what it means to be a disciple. This is your test, all right? You've got to do better than first service. A disciple is what? Someone who, give it to me big, follows Jesus, someone who is changed by Jesus, and someone who's committed to the mission of Jesus. Somebody who A disciple is somebody who follows Jesus who's changed by Jesus, who's committed to the mission of Jesus. We talked about that about three months ago, really kinda of laying that out. And then we talked about what it means to to be a disciple, to to be connected to Jesus, to abide in him, and to have fruit that comes. Fruit, more fruit, much fruit that comes out of our relationship with him. It's not stuff that we manufacture on our own, but it comes out of that relationship with Jesus. Then we jumped into the book of James and began to say, okay, what's it look like for a disciple to live in the world today? And, uh, and we've just kind of preached through the book of James. We've talked about how a disciple deals with temptation how a disciple deals with trials, what a disciple does with controlling their tongue. We've talked about uh, how a disciple um, deals with, with people who are marginalized, um, the least of these in our world. Uh, we've we've uh, talked about, um, let me think, what other weeks? There, uh, we talked about a tongue, how a disciple takes care of their tongue, their temper, their um, temper what a disciple does with, with prejudice or, or with um, favoritism. And for the last three weeks, we've talked about the, the relationship for a disciple between faith and works. That it's not just about our faith, but it's about our works. It's not just about our faith, but it's about our relationships, how those things tie together. And today we're talking about our faith and how it impacts our perspective our view of all of life, all of the stuff of life. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to James chapter 5. If you've got your smartphone, go ahead and open up the North Point app. There's a couple of fill-in-the-blanks today and and a little bit more detail in terms of the the outline for the message that's there. We're going to begin reading in verse 7 of James chapter 5. James writes and says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You, too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. As we think about this whole concept of perspective, of faith and perspective, get this. There's really just two big points to today's message. The first is this. A disciple of Jesus sees the big picture. She's with perspective. A disciple of Jesus sees the big picture. With Thanksgiving this week, um, and with the Ohio State Michigan game yesterday, um, <laughs> I spent a lot of time thinking about my family. Many of you know my dad passed away in September, and um, and I, I Thanksgiving is was the time for me as a kid growing up that my grandma and grandpa my mom and dad and our family, and my aunt and uncle and cousins all got together in Southern Ohio on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. We'd do the big meal, would watch the Ohio State Michigan game, sometimes celebrate, sometimes cry, and, um, and, and do all that together. And it made me think a lot about my grandpa. Uh, somehow my grandpa is really tied into Thanksgiving, and especially into the month of November. Because about in the middle of November, Every year when I was growing up as a boy, um, on the first day of small game hunting season in Ohio, my dad and myself, my brothers-in-laws, once my sisters got married, we would all go to my grandpa's farm. Grandpa bought a farm in the 1930s during the Depression, about 200 acres. And uh, on the first day of hunting season, I'd get out of school, and we would go and hunt. And our goal was to kick up some pheasant and quail, shoot some rabbits, and, and bring something home. That happens sometimes. It didn't happen a lot of times. And I think that my grandpa really loved doing it more than anything so that he could bring us out on the farm and so that we could walk those 200 acres and check out all the fences. Uh, You know, we could just see what was there. And there's this picture in my mind of my grandpa, uh, the farmer. Uh, he, He ended up being an adjunct professor at Ohio State. Um, in the agriculture department. And so he was teaching guys how to farm. And, and there's this picture of my grandfather in, in his farmer mode that's, that's a, that he did something that I think lots and lots of farmers do. He, he would reach, he, he'd pause when it would stop, and he'd reach down and grab a handful of dirt and just rub the soil together. Just rub the soil. would pick it up and rub it together to get a feel... For the soil. Even when Grandpa was old and when he was dying, when his mind wasn't clear, they brought him some flowers. He pulled the flowers out of the pot and put his hand in the soil and sifted that soil in his hands. You know, one thing about my grandpa, about all farmers, farmers never worry about the harvest in the middle of the summer, right? They plant the seed, they fertilize the land, they wait for the rains to come, for the sun to come but they don't worry about the harvest then because they know that it will come in due time. James said, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the the early and late rains. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James says, Hey, if you're a disciple, don't get caught up in the minutia of life. All the little stuff that drags you down, that overwhelms you, realize that Jesus is coming back. The Lord's going to come back, and all of that little stuff isn't going to matter at all. Jesus is coming back. Hear the words of Jesus himself in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place, I'm going to come back and take you unto myself and take you to that place. Jesus is coming back. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples are there. They're looking up because Jesus has lifted off the earth supernaturally, risen into heaven. They're all gawking, and an angel comes and says, why are you guys looking up in the sky? This same Jesus, he's going to come back in the same way. Jesus is going to return. And all that stuff of life that just overwhelms you, that you get so caught up on, it's not going to matter. He says, don't complain against one one another, so that you won't be judged. Don't complain against other disciples. You know, Scripture speaks against complaining, against grumbling. Philippians chapter 2 says, Do everything without grumbling or complaining. That's just in general. But James says specifically, Don't complain against your brothers, against fellow disciples. Don't say, I can't stand the way that that guy does this. Uh, Did you see the way she did that? I know he's a Christian, but... Don't complain about fellow disciples because the judge is standing at the door. Jesus is standing there watching. And the things that we complain about usually are evident in our life as well. Um, that, that phrase that, there there is really interesting to me. The judge is standing there at the door. Does, um, I, as a kid growing up, uh, going to school, it was always, a, there was always an interesting thing that happened in the classroom, right? Teacher goes outside the classroom, what happens? Wow, everything goes crazy, right? Teacher stands in the door watching, and everybody does what they're supposed to. Teacher stands right next to my desk, and I'm completely focused, right? The judge is standing there at the door. Now, I don't want to mess you up tomorrow, but let me just ask this question. If your boss is in your office, does it impact the way that you work? The reason I say I don't want to mess stuff up, because tomorrow's Cyber Monday, right? (laughs) You see where I'm going? If your boss is in your office looking over your shoulder, you're not on the Internet cruising the deals, right? You're fast at hand at task on task. Jesus is standing at the door. He's going to return. And so our perspective has got to change. Grumbling and complaining. You know, that, that when, when we complain, it's, it's because we focus on, that, on those details. I, I talked about my grandpa. I remember as a kid going to an Ohio State game with, with grandpa and, um, and taking the binoculars um, when I go to a football game now, a big football game, I, I'll always take the binoculars, and you know what I'll watch? I won't watch the running back and the quarterback. I watch the offensive line because that's what I played in high school. So I'll watch the guard in the center, and, and what happens as I'm watching that, I'll say, man, that guy held, or oh, he, he just hit him, and I'm so focused on what's going on in the, in the play right there that I'm watching with my binoculars that I miss completely the 65-yard pass for the touchdown, Right? I'm so focused on the details that I miss the big goal that's there. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Don't complain about your brothers and sisters in Christ because that stuff doesn't matter in light of the fact that Jesus will return. Real practical terms when you think about Thanksgiving. The stuff that irritates you, you know what? When your kids are coming home when they've been gone for four or five or six months away at school, when they're coming back home as married with the grandkids, all those little things that would irritate you in normal life, they don't matter at all. When your boss says, you know what? You've just been promoted. You've just got a big raise. All the little stuff, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. When the, when the doctor says, you're cancer-free. All those things that are the irritants, they don't matter at all because you see with the big picture what's really important. What's the thing that gives us that perspective? It's the fact that Jesus is returning, that he's coming back. Everything that we experience right now is temporary. I think the Holy Spirit sometimes whispers in our ears, do do you understand that when you see Jesus, all this stuff, you're going to realize how small it is. Um, can't, can't I say one thing about yesterday's football game? Um, it's, no, no, no. It's, it's this. That game has no eternal significance, right? It's not going to matter at all in heaven. It's not like we're going to sit around the throne of Jesus and say, Do you remember that game in 2017 when Ohio State beat Michigan? That's that's nonsensical, right? But it's so easy for us to get so wrapped up in that stuff. James goes on and says, the example of Job illustrates it perfectly. Job's Job's life, he was blessed. He had all the stuff. Satan came to God and said, you know what? There's nobody that really loves you. And God says, Job does. And, and Satan says, Job only loves you because he has all the good stuff. He's got a big family. He's, he's wealthy. He's got all that stuff. And God said, you know what? I'll take my hand away. You go ahead and, and take that stuff. And in a day, all of Job's possessions, all of his kids are killed. Um, everything is gone. And Job says, you know what? I came into the, I came into the world naked. I'm going to leave naked. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Chapter 2 Satan comes and says, you know what? Job only loves you because you've not hurt his body. And God says, that's not true. Job's got character and integrity. And God withholds his hand, and Satan comes and covers Job with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Chapter 2 of Job describes Job scraping the boils with with shattered pottery, with with a shard of pottery. And his wife, bless her heart, Says, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job says, You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So, in all this, Job did nothing wrong. Job, when you read through the book of Job, all the stuff that happens to him, his friends that turn their backs on him, his wife turns her back on him, everybody says, Curse God and die. And Job, by the end of the book of Job, recognizes the mercy and compassion of God, God's faithfulness no matter what the circumstances. Big picture, perspective. A disciple sees that. He doesn't sweat the small stuff. He doesn't complain about his fellow disciples. He doesn't complain about the stuff that's going on. I'm going to jump down to verse 13 because we talked about verse 12 back when we were talking about the tongue, when, when Jake spoke. Let me, uh, let me just pick up in James chapter 5, verse 13. Is any among you suffering? He must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He's to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church and there to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain on earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. We all wake up to circumstances in our life that we didn't anticipate, that we didn't plan on. There's stuff that happens to us that, we've, that we don't see coming at all. The question is how will we respond to those circumstances? What will we do when those things crop up? A disciple of Jesus, somebody who follows Jesus, who's changed by Jesus, who's committed to the mission of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus owns their response to their circumstances. When the circumstances happen, they don't just say, oh, poor me. Look at all this stuff. They own their response to the circumstances. James says, you know what? If you suffer, pray. Don't whine. Don't gripe. Don't wallow. Pray. If you suffer, pray. If you're happy, sing. Don't gloat. The implication that's there is, uh, if you're happy, praise God in song. Because God's the one who's provided those circumstances for you. If you're sick, call for the elders to pray. You know, that's a funny thing for us. Because we think, if you're sick, what do you do? You call the doctor. You go to the ER or whatever. James says, if you're sick, pray. Uh, Call for the elders to pray. I I don't know if you know this or not. But it is a regular thing that happens with our eldership here at North Point that they pray for people with special needs. They pray for people um, who are sick. They pray for, uh, for people individually. Sometimes it happens in the service here. Sometimes it happens between the services. Sometimes it happens in, uh, in our elders' meetings that, that take place every other week. Um, but it's a common thing for the elders to pray. James says, call for the elders to pray and anoint you, uh, anoint you with oil. That's, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? What, what, it's kind of like, what's that about? In the, in the Old Testament, anointing was something that was done pretty regularly. There's actually a recipe that you, that's found in Scripture for um, how they, what they did to the oil to, make, to create the anointing oil. Um, and there wasn't anything magic in the oil. It was just normal things together. There wasn't anything um, healing uh, healing power in the oil. It was an act of obedience and an act of symbolism that here was the, act, uh, the, the hand of God expressed through this. And so we, when we pray, when the elders pray, there are times that we'll anoint people with oil. Um, that, that oil in the Old Testament was used to anoint people. It was used to anoint the tabernacle because of the presence of God. Um, Back when Deb and I got married, uh, and and we were young back in those days, Deb had a a medical condition called uh, multiple chemical sensitivities or environmental illness. Her body couldn't get rid of chemicals. So whenever she interacted with um, perfume, with hairspray, with uh, chemical cleaners, those toxins, those chemicals would stay in her body and would make her sick because they didn't come out of her body um, in the way that for most of us uh, it would. So it created some interesting challenges for um, for minister, you know, because when you came to church on Sunday, everybody take a shower, got the hairspray, got the perfume, got the cologne, all that stuff going on. One of our churches, we had a group of people that were chemical-free that surrounded Deb so that she could be in worship and be a part of that. Um, uh, for years, years and years and years, we prayed that God would heal her, and, and, uh, and he didn't. In 2011, Deb was a part of a, of a small group that uh, read a book together and, and talked about the book. And there was one phrase in that particular book that she was reading at that point in time that just prompted her to say, you know, I think maybe I need to go to the elders and ask them to anoint me with oil and to pray for me. And she said, I know that doesn't make any sense because we've prayed, you know, you guys have prayed for me. We've, we've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. Um, and the people in her small group, uh, in her life group said, you know what? If the Holy Spirit's prompting you to do that, you need to do that. You need to take that step. She wrestled back and forth. We talked about it. And I said, man, I know that the elders would, would be happy to do that. And, and she said, I mean. finally, she talked to one of the elders and said, can I come and you guys pray for me? And, uh, and they did. It was on a Monday night. Uh, she came home. I said, how you doing? She said, I feel the same. You know, Not don't really sense anything any different at all. Later that, that week, we went out to Sam's Club. Sam's Club is a place full of chemicals. If you think about when you walk into Sam's, you smell the tires, you smell all, this, all the packaging, all that stuff that's there. And, um, and when we were in the store, um, our daughter Leah called, and so she's talking to, to Leah on the phone. What would typically happen is we'd go into Sam's, uh, would be there, get the stuff that we need, would come out, and, and she would just be a mess. She, she'd physically be sick because of the chemicals that were there. So she's just talking to Leah. We go out to the car, we unload the groceries, put them in the car. She hangs up from Leah, and, and all the time I'm watching, and she's not reacting at all to the chemicals like zero she gets off the phone, we keep talking, she finally turned and looked at me and she said, I don't, I don't feel bad. I don't feel bad. I said, I know. And as time went on, there, uh, since 2011, she has not dealt with that illness at all. Um, that, that's, a, that's a God thing, okay? Um, I share that story with you to say when God prompts you to ask for people to pray, whether it's in your small group, or in your family, or the elders, or to be anointed with oil. Respond to that. God, God doesn't always say yes. There were people in first service that that uh, had family member that that was anointed with the oil, prayed for by the elders, and the, and they died. God doesn't always say yes. But the but the critical thing is that we. Obey, the prompting of God, that we respond in that way and say yes, God. Wherever you lead me, that's where I'll go. Um, James says, you know what? If you're sick, call for the elders to pray. Um, confess your sins to one another, he says. You know what? Be- because when when they pray for you, your your uh, sins will be forgiven. He says, confess your sins to one another. First uh, John is clear. First John when he wrote, he said if we conf- confess our sins to one another, God's faithful and just, he'll forgive us our sins. We need we need to confess our sins. We need to find healing from sin. Let me let me just make a point. Not all sickness, not all illness is related to sin. But I think you can't read the book of James and see that there is some illness that is related to sin and that we need to find forgiveness so that God can do his healing work in us. In John 9, um, people bring uh, this guy who was born blind to Jesus and they, and they say, you know, why is this guy blind? Whose sin was it? Was it this guy's sin? Was it his parents' sin? And Jesus said, it wasn't his sin and it wasn't his parents' sin. This guy's blind so that the power of God could be demonstrated today. Sometimes we have illness that doesn't have anything to do with sin at all, but it's so that the power of God can be shown. James goes on and talks about Elijah. When he's talking about the power of prayer, Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament that dealt with the the king and queen of Israel, a guy named Ahab and a woman named Jezebel. They were evil, horribly evil. They battled back and forth. 1 Kings 17 and 18 tell the story of uh, Elijah um, being so fed up with with Ahab that at God's direction, he says, Ahab, here's the deal it's not going to rain until I say so again, it's going to stop. It's not going to rain again. For three and a half years, no rain or dew hits the, the nation of Israel. None at all. Everything dries up. Um, Elijah lives in hiding during those three and a half years. And, and then it ultimately culminates in this battle that takes place between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Um, man, I want to tell that story. We won't go there. Uh, go home and read First Kings 17 and 18. Ultimately, God shows His power in an incredible way, and when it's all done, Elijah says to a servant, he says, "Go look on the horizon because it's going to rain." And, and, the, and the servant goes back and forth seven times. At the end of the seven times, he said, "You know what? In the sky, I see a cloud, the hand of a man the size of a man's fist." And Elijah says to everybody, "Look out because it's going to storm. And the water comes back because of the power of prayer. When you're sick or suffering, the most powerful action you can take is to pray. Uh, Verse 19 in James 5 says this, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death, will cover a multitude of sins. When a disciple strays, we're called to intervene, to act. Hear hear this sentence clearly. Tolerance is not the virtue that Satan would have you believe that it is. We live in a culture that tolerance has become the most important virtue. We say, oh, we've got to tolerate everything around. James says, you know what? If other disciples, if brothers and sisters in Christ are straying, you've got to go talk to them to save their soul, to get them back on track, to spare them and the people around them all of the effects of sin. We've got to get over the culture that we live in and be involved in people's lives and able to come alongside them and bring them back on track when, when they've strayed. Um, now, the, 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 co- the key part of that is to restore someone to their relationship with Jesus. Jesus. That that doesn't happen typically by somebody just arbitrarily pointing out sin, oh, you've got sin in your life, you've got sin in your life, you've got to to change this, you've got to change this, and flacking people upside the head. What typically is needed is a side conversation, coming alongside somebody, loving on them, and saying, hey, man, do you realize I, I I hear you say this, but I see this? Those things don't, they're not matching. James says, as a disciple, we've got to intervene in people's lives and draw them back to Jesus. Ask questions. Don't embitter their hearts. One last thing on that, and and that's this. Um, When someone confronts you about sin, be grateful. When somebody has the courage to say, you know what? It feels like you're straying from Jesus. Be grateful. Don't be defensive. Listen to the Holy Spirit in that process. Uh, Back in 1964, a guy named Don Ritchie and his wife Moya bought a house on a cliff in Australia. Incredibly cool house. They lived there for 48 years from, uh, from 1964 to 2012. Um, this cliff is a, apparently a, 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 has a beautiful view. And um, the, the, the only problem with the house is that um, just, uh, just a little bit away from their house is a, is a place where people in Australia who want to take their own life go and jump off the cliff. Since the 1800s, that was the place that people would go and kill themselves. Um, Don Ritchie, when they bought the house, began to see people do this. And any time that he would see someone who was standing there, lonely, contemplating, he'd go over and talk to them, engage him in conversation, and ultimately, most of the time, invite them back to his house for tea. In almost 50 years, Don Ritchie saved 160 people from committing suicide. Because he had the courage to see what was going on and to take the steps to intervene of somebody who was straying, somebody who, who was away. It's ironic to me that his vocation was that he sold life insurance. Um, we're going to sing a song in just a second. For the last three weeks, we've been talking about faith and works, faith and relationship. Today, faith and perspective. As we bring this series to a close, my desire is that it would not have resulted in more knowledge about the book of James, but that it would have drawn us to Jesus, that it would draw us to live like disciples who follow, who are changed by, who are committed to the mission of Jesus. There's a danger for us when we talk about the book of James, when we talk about all the stuff that we talked about for the last 10 weeks, and that's that we would do the things that disciples do. We know that that's what we're supposed to do. So we would be all about the work end of things. Those works have got to spill over from our relationship with Jesus. It all starts there. That's, That's the place that the work's have any kind of value or power or meaning from. One of the prophets in the Old Testament, a guy named Isaiah, wrote this. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. God's here, and he wants us to come to him as his children. He wants us to crawl on his lap. He wants us to rest in that relationship. And he doesn't want us to run ahead of him, to try and do things on our own. He wants us to wait and let him lead us. We're going we're to sing. And, and I hope that this song will, will bring in our minds the sense not that, that we're waiting for God to arrive here, but that we're waiting for God to lead. That when he leads, when we, we'll respond. When he speaks, we'll listen when he steps that will follow. Let's stand together. Let's sing.